This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back. I'm going to talk about the topic of lactic acidosis, which is something that I think is is commonly uh, used in intensive care units and resuscitation of a post-operative patient, a septic patient, uh, or a trauma patient. But I, I'm really of the opinion that few people who are actually taking care of these patients actually have um, some input or some insight as to what really is lactic acidosis, what is it uh, really uh, when we measure lactate, what's it... Um, What's it really a measure of, and how do we use it to provide optimal resuscitation uh, of our patients? Lactate really is a a tool that's used to measure what I would call oxygen kinetics, and that is um, how well we're delivering oxygen. You know, shock is, is commonly thought of by individuals as hypotension, and hopefully through these podcasts we've demonstrated to people that, you know, Shock is is not associated with blood pressure. Shock is really when the oxygen demand uh, exceeds the oxygen delivery. Uh, And and in in part, the entire organism or the person could be in shock, but particular organs can be in in shock where uh, other organs may have adequate oxygen delivery uh, through to shunting or better autoregulation. And an organ such as kidney could be um, in shock because it's not getting adequate blood flow or adequate uh, oxygen delivery. You have to think a little bit about the energetics of how tissue works through glycolysis, the Krebs cycle, electron transport chain, and what are some of those intermediary steps uh, that if we don't have enough oxygen, that'll lead to the condition of an elevated lactate or commonly referred to as a lactic acidosis. The, uh, for the most basic standpoint, what happens is that uh, glucose goes through the process of glycolysis and it uses oxygen uh, to then go into the Krebs cycle. And then from Krebs cycle, the metabolites are then go through the electron transport chain. And we learned really in high school chemistry that by doing this, we can generate a certain large number of ATP, a net number of 36 ATP for glucose molecule. But in the absence of oxygen, uh, the, the intermediaries, glucose can go to pyruvate. The pyruvate cannot enter the Krebs cycle. And it's that point where the pyruvate is shunted in the formation of lactate. And when we see that elevation of lactate, we basically, in in the most primitive circumstances, we'll say, okay, that's because we don't have enough oxygen and the pyruvate can't enter the Krebs cycle. And hopefully in the discussion of this podcast, we'll talk about where the lactate is is, uh, generated, how it is metabolized, what organs it's used to metabolize, and are there other circumstances where a patient could have adequate oxygen delivery, but have uh, an increase in the uh, lactate. And what would be those conditions that would create that? Let's start the discussion with the metabolism of lactate. And lactate is formed, uh, again, when glucose is reduced to pyruvate. And, and ultimately, pyruvate is um, produced by the enzyme lactate dehydrogenase. Now, the process produces two molecules of ATP. And this formation of lactate is a source of cellular energy during anaerobic metabolism, basically when we don't have enough oxygen. Now, the reaction occurs within the cytosol of the, as the final step of the metabolic sequences known as glycogen. And again, this is, you'll remember from high school chemistry, the actual step-by-step what molecule, what enzyme isn't really relevant for this discussion. Now, lactate levels in the the blood really result from the process of the formation of the production of lactate as well as the clearance of lactate. Now, in a normal clinical circumstance, blood lactate levels are typically less than 2 millimoles per liter. 
what's interesting is that under normal circumstances, a rather significant amount of lactate is, is produced on a daily basis. Approximately 1,500 millimoles of lactate are produced daily from tissues such as skeletal muscle, skin, brain, intestine, as well as red blood cells. Now, in case of severe illness, the lactate production will actually increase in other tissues. Lungs, as an example, can be a significant source of uh, production of lactate during acute lung injury. And what's interesting is this is this production of lactate is not uh, as a result of a hypoxic injury. It's just the actual fact of the inflammatory process of acute injury. Now, leukocytes may also produce large amounts of lactate during the processes of phagocytosis uh, or when they're activated, as in the case of sepsis. Now, lactate is cleared uh, principally by the liver. 60% of the lactate is cleared by the liver. Uh, But also the kidney also will clear about 30% uh, of the lactate. Uh, Other organs that actually can clear it, which are interesting to me, are heart and skeletal muscle to a lesser extent, obviously. It's certainly part of that 10%. I never thought uh, prior to reading for this podcast that heart or skeletal muscle could be considered a source of lactate clearance. Now, what happens once the lactate is formed is it goes back to the liver um, and where the lactate is utilized via a series of chemical reactions known as the Cori cycle. And the Cori cycle is lactate is converted back to pyruvate and eventually back to glucose through the process of what's called gluconeogenesis. So let's let's wind that up a little bit, okay? So you start out with glucose, you go through the process of glycolysis, lysis, okay, glycolysis, you're breaking down the glucose. Glucose goes to pyruvate, pyruvate cannot enter the Krebs cycle due to lack of oxygen, therefore the pyruvate goes to lactate, the lactate is elevated, it goes to the liver, where the process known as the Cori cycle, C-O-R-I cycle, then we'll take that lactate, basically then convert it back to glucose, and that process is known as gluconeogenesis, gluconeogenesis, the creation of new glucose. Now, you can certainly hear that one of the organs you hear a lot of is that uh, the liver is certainly uh, very important in the clearance of glucose or the metabolism of, excuse me, the, the clearance of lactate as well as the metabolism of lactate back to glucose. Now, in patients who have chronic liver disease, usually those with a grade 3 or grade 4 encephalopathy, the clearance of lactate is certainly decreased. It's also increased elevated blood, luc- uh, blood levels. Uh, you can also see this a little bit in patients who have shock uh, liver after a major trauma. They may get a lot of lactate ringers uh, in the field or during the resuscitation phase. Um, this usually is a total non-contributor, the amount of lactate. And we'll talk about that more towards the end of this podcast. But uh, patients who are in shock liver, uh, they may have uh, lactate because of, of poor perfusion from their shock state. But you can almost anticipate that that lactate clearance uh, may also be decreased in following that shock liver. Now, metabolic clearance mechanisms, lactate can be excreted by the kidney uh, once the renal threshold is exceeded, and that's about five millimoles per liter. So once you get to that threshold, you'll be able to pee um, the lactate out in the urine, but you've got to hit that threshold. And therefore, hepatic and renal impairment will also result in that lactate clearance. Remember, we said that number is 60% of clearance of lactate by the liver and about 30% lactate clearance by the kidney. The classic sense of when we think of an elevated lactate is in shock states with poor oxygen delivery. Um, and 
Uh, poor oxygen delivery is basically we need a certain threshold of oxygen to feed the cells of a particular tissue. If they don't get it, you have insufficient oxygen to meet the cellular demand. This is classically known as a type A lactic acidosis. And um, this will, uh, we mentioned with a type A lactic acidosis, you get an accumulation of pyruvate, and that pyruvate will then form uh, into lactate. Now, in low oxygen tension states, pyruvate will not enter the mitochondria for oxidative phosphorylation. Oxidative phosphorylation is another fancy word for the Krebs cycle. So no oxygen, no Krebs cycle. Um, the hypoxia has been shown to inhibit also uh, the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is involved in the aerobic breakdown of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. You'll remember from your high, your high school biology that acetyl-CoA, um, or acetyl-coenzyme A, I should say, acetyl-CoA is that first um, metabolic intermediary in the Krebs cycle. Okay, so no oxygen, pyruvate dehydrogenase shuts down, and therefore, that pyruvate has to be shunted over to the creation of lactate. Pyruvate levels increase, uh, and then lactate dehydrogenase then will create lactate. It's my hope that through these series of podcasts that we've taught you that, you know, stable is, is, a, is a paradigm that uh, I, I really feel uncomfortable with. As somebody has a normal set of vital signs that I really discourage folks from saying, oh, well, they have a normal set of vital signs, therefore all is good because people can be well compensated. Um, you know, if you look at different levels of hypovolemic shock or the stages of hypovolemic shock, you can be in stage three hypovolemic shock with 25% of your blood volume loss before you would see the classic signs and symptoms that we would describe is unstable. And so when you start thinking about the lactate as well, uh, somebody doesn't need to be, quote, unstable by traditional senses to have an elevated lactate. Uh, they actually may have adequate oxygen delivery. They can have normal vital signs, but still have an elevated lactate. And it's been shown in patients who have hemodynamically stable sepsis. Okay, I'll say that again. Hemodynamically stable sepsis. They're not hypotensive. They don't have a heart rate of 130. You can have elevated lactate, and that can be more related to altered clearance than to overproduction. So again, you got to think of it's a, it's a balance. It's, it's a scale. Production versus clearance. Now, what's to be mindful of is that the lactate itself is probably not harmful to the individual. And it's typically shuttled the tissues during stress states. Um, and when the lactate levels are elevated in the blood, it's not so much that the lactate is harmful to the individual. It's what it represents. It represents a state of poor tissue delivery or the fact that you've got some sort of cellular aberration or, 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 or clearance mechanism. Lactate by itself is not toxic to the individual. It is a symptom of a more severe problem. Why would I have elevated lactate? Well, maybe I'm in shock. Maybe I have... Uh, acute blood loss, anemia, hypovolemia, uh, poor forward flow from cardiogenic shock, or I've had an MI. Um, any of those things may uh, result in a decrease in oxygen delivery. Now, I think we've had these discussions in the past as, well, what is oxygen delivery? Well, if you actually get into the way called the shoemaker sense, if you start looking at the formulas of what is delivery, we actually have a formula in critical care that defines oxygen delivery, and we typically use the, uh, sh- uh, the foot, the uh, shorthand of DO2 to define delivery. And the delivery of oxygen is basically a product of the content of arterial oxygen multiplied by the cardiac output. So those two factors, the content of oxygen in the blood and the cardiac output, determine the delivery of oxygen at any given point, tissue, blood, brain, heart, kidney, so forth. Now, uh, we know that cardiac output is a function of what? Heart rate times stroke volume. 
So that's going to determine the cardiac output part of it. What determines the content of arterial oxygen? The content of arterial oxygen is determined by another equation. And I, I, I love equations in teaching in the ICU, but it's really hard to do that in a podcast because I like to talk with my hands. I like to draw things on paper. I don't have that luxury in this particular format. But the content of arterial oxygen is defined by the hemoglobin times 1.34 times the saturation of oxygen. You add to that... times the PO2. Now, what you heard there is 0.0031 times the PO2. That is the amount of the the PO2, as you can see, is that you were not designed to carry oxygen um, basically dissolved into plasma. That's really what the partial pressure of oxygen is looking at, is the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma. But you heard, what was that other number? Was 1.34 times the saturation of arterial oxygen. That is how you're designed to carry oxygen in the blood. So basically, the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin. So that is the content of oxygen in the blood times the cardiac output. That is your that determines your delivery of, of oxygen to any particular tissue or point in the body. Now, how do we use this lactate as uh, in the intensive care unit? Well, basically, we use it as a prognostic marker or a barometer of how we're doing from a physiological perspective or a resuscitation perspective. Uh, whether or not blood lactate levels are elevated due to increased production or decreased clearance, monitoring levels are really a valuable um, barometer of the state of shock or of critical illness. And lactate is really only one of many markers we use uh, in, in critical illness. The example I like to imagine is, you know, if you're going camping and you have a GPS, and those who've listened to this podcast are probably tired of, of this example, but if you're only accessing one or two of those GPS satellites, you'll see, oh, well, you know, that my GPS unit is is accurate to say 20 or 30 feet, but all of a sudden it picks up more satellites, it's triangulating better, and it may be accurate to say 4 or 5 feet. Don't use lactate as a sole determinant of whether somebody's adequately resuscitated or not. Uh, it is a uh, it is a good biomarker, but it is not the sole biomarker. We would like to, uh, lactate level as one of the markers, a value greater than 4 millimoles per liter um, um, is a recommended uh, of the point at which you really need to be very aggressive in your resuscitation according to the surviving sepsis guidelines. So if you get that um, lactate and it's greater than 4, you need to start aggressive resuscitation. Again, this is according to the surviving sepsis guidelines. And if you want more information on that, I'd refer you to our podcast that we did on that topic. As we said, the lactate can actually be pretty effective as a prognostic tool. And uh, a series of authors in 2007, the lead author, I'm going to spell the names, I'll kill it if I say it, and it's spelled T-R-Z-E-C-I-K. Him and his colleagues, they observed initial lactate levels, and they looked at 1,100 patients presented in the emergency department and uh, intensive care units and general hospital wards. Lactates were really divided into... Um, groups of really three groups those that were considered low with a lactate level of less than two millimoles per liter um, high was considered greater than four millimoles per liter and the intermediary lactate was at area between two and four and they found that lactate levels greater than four to be highly specific for predicting acute uh, phase of death and in-hospital death in all three of these groups and it was specific and a range between 88 89 and 99 percent therefore those authors conclude that initial lactate levels on the suspicion of clinical sepsis, that's what they're looking at, could be used to augment but not uh, replace bedside uh, mortality assessment no matter the location of the patient. Now, Shapiro and colleagues took patients with suspected infection in the emergency department 
and they hypothesized that the initial serum lactate levels would predict hospital mortality. And again, they, they broke this down into a low, intermediate, and high group. And their, their breakdown is a little bit different. They considered low lactates of less than 2.5, high lactates greater than 4, and intermediate in that range between 2 and 4. And they showed increased likelihood of mortality uh, in each of those groups. So if you had a lactate left less than 2.5, your mortality rate was 4%. Um, if your lactate was between 2.5 and, and 4, your mortality rate was 9%. But if you had a lactate of greater than 4, you had a mortality rate, a predicted mortality of 28.4%, and they had a 92% specificity for death. Now, later, Shapiro in 2007, they enrolled normal, tensive, and hypotensive patients. And again, they're looking at emergency department patients uh, with suspected infections. Okay, so, you know, don't take this data and say, okay, now we're going to take this prognostic data and apply it to, you know, the resuscitation of hypovolemic trauma patients from bleeding. This is emergency department patients, and this is initial lactates, and this is for related to infection. And this is in part where the surviving se- some of the surviving sepsis um, um, paradigm comes from. But looking at normal tensive and hypotensive patients, any ED suspected of infection, they showed an odds ratio of death of 2.2 for those patients with an intermediate lactate levels and an odd ratio of 7.1 for high levels of lactate. So mortality rate was 7.1 higher if you had a lactate of greater than 4 on admission to an emergency department uh, with suspected infection. Now, those values were independent of hypotension, I'm sorry. Now, mortality in the normal tense of patients with lactate levels greater than 4 was similar to uh, normal lactemic patients who had a systolic pressure of less than 70. So, again, you can see that the lactate as a biomarker is perhaps more helpful than um, the actual blood pressure. I want to close out this podcast talking about lactate ringers because um, a lot of times you'll see people who have perhaps have an elevated lactate. Lactate ringers is a good resuscitation fluid, and people will say, well, we're not going to give lactate ringers because they already have a lactate of, of three and a half, and therefore we're not going to use lactate ringers. Yeah, it requires really some discussion of what lactate ringers is. Uh, one liter of lactate ringer solution is 130 milliequivalents of sodium. It's four milliequivalents of potassium. 3 milliequivalents of calcium, 109 milliequivalents of chloride, and 28 milliequivalents of lactate and sterile water. Now, this is an isotonic resuscitation fluid um, uh, relative to the extracellular fluid. Uh, it is less acidic than, say, saline. Um, and uh, the addition of uh, sodium lactate increases the pH of this to about 6.6. So its lactate acts as a base, and therefore it's not really the, it's not there to cause an acidosis. It's not for the acidosis. Um, often due to the diagnosis of lactic acidosis, people um, will not use lactate and will end up using saline. And if you've heard some of our stuff, uh, we've talked about resuscitation fluids, it's a very common error is people get resuscitated with large volumes of normal saline. And normal saline has 154 milliequivalents of sodium and 154 milliequivalents of chloride. And you start giving, say, you know, a burn patient or a trauma patient large amounts of that, which you create as a condition called a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. So your resuscitation is actually creating the acidosis because of your elevating the chloride. Uh, again, it's not the lactate in the lactate ringers that's causing the acidosis. Uh, there was a study of 60 patients with severe sepsis or septic shock, and hyperchloric metabolic acidosis to saline infusion was the predominant cause in those septic patients of the metabolic acidosis. So 
in this particular podcast, we've talked about lactic acidosis, and we've talked particularly about what we call, we'll call the type A lactic acidosis. The type A lactic acidosis is, in summary, related to poor oxygen delivery. We've gone through the metabolism and talked about how we can get elevated lactate. Now, there, if there's a type A, you know there's a type B. And a type B, we'll talk about in the next podcast, and that will be a discussion of of how do we get a type B acidosis? Is it related to auction delivery? But actually, we'll, we'll tip our hand now. It's actually related to a variety of, of, of conditions and medications that aren't related to poor auction delivery. What's neat about these conditions is you see somebody who's got a big lactate. You do everything you can to resuscitate them. You may put a PA line in them. You might get an echo. You'll get mixed venous saturations. Trying to optimize auction delivery, but it won't make an improvement in the lactate. Thanks for listening to ICU Rounds. Uh, next time we're going to talk about type B lactic acidosis. Uh, lactic acidosis is not related to auction delivery. Uh, make sure you check out the other podcasts. You can download these uh, through the web on icrounds.com. You can also get them free. Subscribe through the uh, Apple iTunes store and just do a search on IC Rounds. And again, uh, subscribe and they're free. Uh, Wizard Media has an application that you can uh, download um, through the Apple Store, um, and there's people who designed the uh, the app and run the app, and um, I think it's a dollar ninety nine. You can actually have all the uh, podcasts available on delivery, uh, on demand um, through that application. Also, you can download the latest episode of IC Rounds uh, by using the uh, uh, application. Stitcher, which is a free uh, download uh, through the Apple iTunes store. And that will provide you with the uh, latest uh, uh, IC Rounds episode. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.